The terms of your employment by the District Health Board are covered in your employment contract. The MECA, or Multi-Employer Collective Agreement, is the name of this contract for all members of the Resident Doctors Association, or RDA. For non-members, the terms are covered by an Individual Employment Agreement, or IEA, which looks similar, but often has a few less protections for you as an employee. You have likely signed an IEA when you accepted your job offer at a DHB, but this will be superseded by the latest MECA if you are a fee-paying RDA member. Unfortunately, most RMOs don't ever get around to reading the MECA, so in this episode we will cover the need-to-know parts of your contract, as well as where and when to get help from the RDA. With me today I've got Tara Martin and Melissa Dobbin uh, from the RDA offices. Tara, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, so my name is Tara and I've been involved with the RDA for almost three years now. I've graduated with law from Auckland University and yeah, just do some um, advocacy work for the RDA and um, involved in other things like event organising and delegates training. I'm Melissa Dobbin and I've been working with the RDA for beginning uh, of five or six years now. I'm a senior advocate. I do bargaining for a number of groups and I'm the 2IC for bargaining for the RDA, although it's about to change. And uh, I work with Tara and Sarah and our team here advocating for the members and um, helping them with compliance with the contract. So if an RDA member emails or calls the officers, they'll basically get in touch with you. They'll get a response yeah, from you. Yeah, it comes to me directly, first of all, and then we divide the work up between us. But pretty much at some stage in your career, you'll be in touch with, with these two. <laughs> yes. All right, so Tara, would you like to just go through the really important key rules in our contract that every house officer should know from day one? Sure. So probably the most important rules to know, the first is cross-cover outside ordinary hours. So this is a breach of the MECA, so, uh, and the DHBs know this, so you shouldn't be asked to do it and you shouldn't be doing cross-cover outside ordinary hours, so at nights or during the weekends. Also with cross-cover, um, you may be asked to, to do this. Um, so this is when you're covering an absent colleague during ordinary hours. This is voluntary, so you can, obviously, uh, you're entitled to De- decline to do this. So just stepping back, so cross cover is when there is another RMO who should have been should be there but is absent. So they might be sick, they might be on leave and un- uncovered, and being asked to effectively cover your duties as well as somebody else's. That's right. So your workload increases, which is why it's your choice, um, and you have to take into consideration your uh, current workload and then the proposed workload before you agree to to carry out that additional work. Bearing in mind, you will effectively be taking responsibility for. Both those duties. Definitely, and any um, medico-legal implications that result. And that's why it happens by default, where you've turned up to work and there's somebody away who no cover has been provided for, and you find that no conversation is had with you around, are you okay to do this? If you think that you aren't, you need to let management know that you're not prepared to carry out that cross-cover and that uh, somebody else will have to take that work uh, as important as Sam says, that you are taking responsibility for the workload of somebody else as well as your own, so it's not something to be entered into lightly. So it's never okay on weekends, in the evenings or nights, so that's outside ordinary hours, no matter if you're a first year or a senior registrar, the DHBs and the RDA, well, this is 
written in the contract itself. Yeah, and that's because you're on minimum staffing levels at those times already, um, with just the bare minimum to be safe. And so if there's somebody away, then it's dropped below that safe threshold and it should never, ever happen. And there are things on our website um, that you can do if you find yourself in that situation, emails that you need to send straight away and to contact us and let us know that you're in that situation. So what are the other rules, Dara? Okay, so as a maximum, you can work two long days in seven, and this is any this is any seven consecutive days, so it's not necessarily Monday to Sunday, um, but you should be yeah, not working any more than two long days. Um, and a long day is any hours greater than 10. So it can be a, a, a 12-hour shift or right up to a 16-hour shift, but that's a long day and no more than two in any seven-day stretch. And then in terms of hours, you've got, you should, um, as a maximum, not be working any more than 72 hours in seven days. And again, this is any consecutive seven-day period and no more than 144 hours in 14. You do have a responsibility to, you might go over these hours to let the DHB know as soon as possible so they can make alternative arrangements there. And what often happens is that you're not rostered initially to 72 hours, maybe you're rostered to 70 hours on a busy week, but if you have your first long day go over by an hour, an hour and a half, and then you have a few normal days that you're both got a really busy post-take time and you're there till five or six o'clock for a few days, you can see that your hours are already going to be going over. And so it's at that stage where you go, well, actually on my seventh day, I'm going to be going past 72 hours. As soon as you realize that, so a few days beforehand, you need to get in touch with the RMO unit and let them know that it's going to be a breach um, and that it's unacceptable for you to work beyond that time. Absolutely. And once you've done that, the DHB then needs to, uh, you know, organise, organise cover and do what they can to ensure that you don't end up going over those hours. The next one is the eight-hour break rule. So if you uh, have shifts and you finish at, uh, say, 2200, say 10 o'clock at night, and for whatever reason you continue working past that time if you've got doing something complicated and you can't leave, and so you end up not having an eight-hour break between finishing that shift at night and starting again the following morning, you're entitled to a penalty payment. But again, it's a health and safety thing. So if you're leaving at four, you know, midnight and you know that you can expect to be back at work at seven o'clock in the morning, you should have a conversation with the people there and say something along the lines of, hey, look, I'm, you know, it's going to take me half an hour to get home. I'm not going to get an opportunity to get sufficient rest. I'm going to come in, is it right if I come in a bit late in the following morning? That's the ideal. Um, sometimes that doesn't happen, in which case there is a penalty payment attached with that, which, which you can claim. Uh, it's a bit more complicated if you're doing on-call shifts, which are sort of a whole separate area in themselves. So if that's the situation, which probably I don't think most um, house officers as such work too many on-call shifts, but if that's the case, give us a call if you need explanation around how the eight-hour rule, um, eight-hour break rule applies. And the final rule we've got down that you need to know is that every other weekend has to be completely free of duties. Um, that's a minimum in most DHBs. In some DHBs, uh, that rule extends to one in three. So if you work a weekend, the next two weekends must be completely free of duties. Uh, it, it was agreed if your roster has been changed to be um, brought in line with the new safer rostering rules, you can have back-to-back weekends. But it, you, if you do back-to-back weekends, you then have to have the next, I think it's the next seven it's weekends um, free of duties. So in effect, you're still doing the same ratio. It's just now if you've got back-to-back ones, you then can't be rostered to do a weekend again. And when we say rostered, that's any kind of duty over a weekend. So again, if it's on call, that, that 
also can't be done back to back. Um, there's also conversation around or, or clarity that you might need around what is a weekend considered, um, if that includes a Friday night duty or a Sunday night duty. Uh, again, um, it's probably best if you contact us to get clarity around that because it's not that straightforward. But we're doing a Saturday morning ward round counts as working in the weekend. So if you do a Saturday morning ward round, you can't be expected to work for the next weekend. All right, thanks. So those are just really important rules to know. Uh, if you need clarity on them, check out the MECA facts or get in touch with the RDA. We perhaps should have mentioned the number of sleep recovery days that you have to have after having worked nights. I'm not sure if that's coming up, but that's something you should also be checking in your roster, um, that after, um, after five nights you have to have at least three days sleep. It's the balance of the day on which you finish the nights plus a further two days. Um, when it's less than five nights, um, again, it, it varies depending on if you're working a safer roster or if you and how the nights have been split. So that might be something to check again with um, your, either your delegate or with us if you're unsure that you've been given enough sleep recovery days after having worked nights. All right, so leave is a vital part of uh, your working life. You're entitled to 30 days uh, every year. It's really important that you take it for your work-life balance and also so that you know that you're well-rested so you can provide good care and can also improve your educational opportunities and basically be a good doctor. So what should we go through with leave? So the different, the different types of leave. So you've got annual leave, and that is for rest and recreation. Um, that's the purpose of annual leave. And as Sam just said, it's really important that you take it and use it for that purpose. Yeah, so you get 30 days of annual leave a year. If you find that you're having difficulty getting annual leave approved, do get in touch with us because we can just, you know, check that the DHB's taking all reasonable steps to ensure that your leave can be approved. And it is the responsibility. The most important thing is it's leave is the responsibility of the employer or to ensure that you have cover so that you can take the leave and um, yes it's not up to you to, to source your own own cover. So the first step in the process is to work out when you want to take leave and then you need to apply for it. Most DHBs I believe would have a form that you fill out. You don't have to use the form, you can send an email or something similar if you happen to be at home and can't get access to that form. It needs to be in writing and you need to make a, a note of the date on which you submitted that application because there are rules around how, by when they need to respond by and you need to be able to prove when it was that you sent in the, the leave application form. With annual leave, the DHB needs to respond to you within two weeks of you submitting your request and they need to approve or decline the leave no later than two weeks. So if you're having difficulty with um, getting a response back from the DHB, again, that's something that we could advise on or assist with, so you can get in touch with us for that. The leave abutting weekends clause is a really important one just to be familiar with, and this clause applies to all types of leave except for days in lieu or your, um, your, st your still days. And if you're taking leave on a Friday or a Monday, then you can't be required to work the weekend. Yeah, so basically if you get leave approved on a Friday, Saturday and Sunday are automatically off. Likewise, if you have leave approved on a Monday, that preceding Saturday and Sunday are also off and free of duties. And the weekend includes the Friday night, so you can't be asked to work the Friday night. That's a question that we get a lot from members. Yeah, because you'd then be working the Saturday morning. How this usually works out is most people will apply for five days of leave, so Monday to Friday, and therefore they have the weekend either side of that off. We get a lot of uh, questions about applying for 
and having approved your, your days in lieu, so you will get a day in lieu, so if you work a public holiday, and in the MECA it states that you have to give the DHB at least 14 days notice of you wanting to take that, that day as leave. Obviously in some situations you might be able to give them more time, but it's at least 14 days in writing of wanting to take the day. Now if the DHB comes back and states that the day isn't convenient for them, so they might come back and say, your request has been declined because of lack of cover or something along those lines, then if you still wish to take that particular day, then you can go back and tell the DHB that you've taken their view into consideration, i.e. that the day isn't as convenient for them. However, you still wish to go ahead and take the day and they must approve it. The thing to remember is they, they can be used on you know, any day, weekends or long days, when you, you use your loo day. The only day they can't be used on is a public holiday. But any other day, it, you, you can take them. And the thing with loo days is they're very important to you because they are the, the leave that you get to decide when you're going to take it. And they don't transfer when you go to a new employer. So we would recommend you use it um, as soon as you can or as soon as you want to within the, um, within the year in which you earned it or accrued it because they can't be transferred. When we say they can't be transferred, it doesn't mean they just disappear. You do get them paid out, but we strongly recommend you take those loo days and use them. They're very precious. You never know when you might need one, especially for weddings or childcare issues or anything. And I always think it's quite useful to use them either on a weekend or a long day when somebody actually can uh, cover you. So especially on the weekend, there are actually RMOs free who will actually be to cover you. If you take it on a weekday, you might think that you're doing people a favour, but you probably aren't because actually your colleagues will probably just have to cross-cover each other. But yeah, and you don't the- have to have um, worked the whole of the public holiday. If, for example, you started nights on a public holiday and so you started at 10 and finished at midnight, you still get a full loo day to be taken when you want, and again, that can be a 16-hour day, so they are, they are very valuable. The same also applies if you work a 16-hour day on a public holiday, you get another day, you don't get two eight-hour days. You can only earn one loo day for having worked a public holiday. So the important thing there is that whilst you will end up getting that day approved, there is that process that you need to go through whereby you need to respond back to the DHB, take their view into consideration and assert that you still wish to go ahead and take the day. There are those steps that need to be worked through. It's your responsibility that the DHB knows you're not turning up to work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so while loo days can't be transferred, other um, types of leave can be. So your annual leave balance if you are changing employers and you're moving to a new DHB, you can request to have your uh, annual leave balance transferred to your new employer up to a maximum of a year's worth that um, anything over that gets paid out to you. But if you've got a balance that goes with you uh, to your new employer, but you want to keep an eye that it does get transferred in in a timely manner um, so that you know that your leave's come with you when you've started it in your employer. With sick leave, you get uh, 30 working days a year and then when you're fourth year onwards it starts to accumulate. Basically there's usually plenty of sick leave. Mm-hmm. It's important that you do take your sick leave, don't come to work sick, don't get your team sick, don't make your immunocompromised patients sick. The DHB yeah, can ask you for to provide a medical certificate any time that you're on sick leave but from the third day onwards if they do request it you have to pay for it and on the first and second day if they were to ask you then it's at their cost. They won't always ask um, but uh, 
yes, you, you may have to go and visit your GP, which you should all have one. And uh, yeah, you may be asked to give that medical certificate. And uh, if you are required, asked to give one less than uh, for the first or second day, it's all the costs associated with getting that medical certificate. It's not just the cost of seeing your GP. It's also if you have to travel there or park and those kinds of things. Any costs incurred with providing that certificate, the DHB has to reimburse you for. If you've got a situation where you are required to look after a dependent, perhaps a child or um, a parent or something like that who's ill, then maybe get in touch with us because there are some provisions around that which are a little bit more complex. But, um, it's also... pretty straightforward if it's a child. Yeah. Uh, it gets a little bit more complicated if it's a, a parent or someone who may not live with you normally. That can be a little bit more problematic. But if it's a child, your child that you're having to stay home and care for, uh, that's a sick leave situation. So then your responsibilities really are just to uh, let the RMO units know um, and ideally your registrar so that kind of your team know on the day uh, and the workplace actually knows. You can take sick leave too for medical procedures and those types of things. Um, it's called anticipated sick leave when you know when you're going to be needing to take sick leave. You do have to be a little bit more flexible around the dates of that to take into consideration when the, the DHB is going to have perhaps cover available to cover you when you're taking that sick leave. But you are entitled to, to take anticipated sick leave. Well, bereavement leave, I don't think it's stipulated, but in general you get granted it. Yes, uh, and I've never known anyone not to get it granted. Um, it's, the, the time frame isn't um, specified in, in the contract. I think it is in, under the law. I think it's a minimum of three, three days, days. I think it is. Um, but if you, if you need more than that, if, um, if particularly for cultural reasons, that's fine. You can apply to have a longer period than that for bereavement leave. So Tara, can you tell us a little bit about parental leave? Sure. So well, you're obviously entitled to parental leave. If you're thinking about having a baby or if you find out that you're pregnant, we suggest getting in touch with us in the first instance, even before you disclose the fact that you're pregnant to the um, DHB, and we can have a chat with you over the phone just about how it all works. We've got some really good resources here in the office as well. You have to give one month's notice, at least one month's notice, to the DHB of you taking the parental leave. Parental leave is uh, leave without pay. However, in the MECA, there are... Uh, provisions in terms of you getting paid. You basically get full pay for up to six weeks. That's right, yeah. Uh, so yeah, but no, it's, um, we get lots of calls about that, so we suggest um, if you've got questions about it, just flick us a call and it's easier just to chat with you in person about it over the phone. And it applies to both both um, mother and father, and even if both of you are RMOs, you're both entitled. The next thing we're going to talk about are cost of training. As a house officer, you're entitled to some basic costs uh, to be reimbursed. Uh, the ones that will apply to everybody is your initial application to the Medical Council for your practicing certificate um, and also for the annual renewal of that certificate. So you have to pay for it yourself each year, but then you submit the invoice and proof that you've paid it to your DHB and then they will reimburse you. For insurance, you all need to have uh, medical malpractice insurance. That is usually paid for directly by most DHBs. So don't pay for that one yourself if you get an invoice in the mail. Contact your DHB and just get them to pay for it first is usually the easiest because otherwise you have to try to convince them to pay you back. Other costs of training that are often covered are things that are related directly to training. So that is courses, uh, transport to and from courses and accommodation. As a PGY1, it's rare to go on 
courses related to vocational training. So it doesn't really apply. Having said that, there's nothing in the Mecca that says that you can't get it. So you're, if there's a course you want to do that you think is going to be useful, you are very welcome to apply to the GHB for your medical education leave. Uh, certainly from PGY2, you know, you really should be starting to upskill and take your medical education leave. So you get 12 weeks of medical education leave over a vocational training period. It, I think that one's somewhat arbitrary because in the end, if you need more. That's at the discretion. The employer can um, always uh, give you more, but just important to be aware of your 12 yeah. weeks. And, yeah. Yeah. So as a PGY2, you're entitled to five days a year, and that's useful to do courses that might start giving you some points on your CV so to try to get into your vocational training program. Um, and specifically, if you do the postgraduate diploma of obstetrics and medical gynecology or the postgraduate diploma of pediatrics, that extends out to two weeks in PGY2 um, and beyond because those courses require a bit more time off. There are lists of pre-approved courses for reimbursement on the RDA website, but it's not an exhaustive list. So there are other costs of training that if you think are important for your training and they should be reimbursed, uh, you can talk to your DHB or talk to us. It's really important if the DHB declines um, reimbursement for something that you think is beneficial to your pathway to achieving vocational scope that you get in touch with us because we will know whether you know that's a reasonable cost, whether it's something that's been approved before. So we're quite familiar with that. So if you're unsure if it's been declined and you think, well, hang on a minute, this looks like a cost of training that should be reimbursed. I'm not too sure why it hasn't been. Then yeah, check in with us definitely, and we'll be able to advise you on that. So I'd also point out that medical education leave should not be forced upon you for doing your annual ACLS course. That's just a requirement of being at work and they should just let you have the half day or the day off to attend ACLS. It doesn't and come, it, off, and of it wouldn't come off your balance. Leave balance yeah. Yeah. We have also a document on the uh, website and we suggest this to members. It's both for costs of training, um, getting those approved, and also for medical education leave. It's a, uh, where you right outline your career pathway for your vocational scope and it's a really good planning tool and then can be used as a reference and just you know to support your claim for any reimbursement for a cost of training or to have medical education leave approved as well. You don't have to be in the training program already to be entitled to either um, to the cost of training to be reimbursed but it does have to be part of your career pathway. So as Tara said, if you've been clear about what your, your goal is, it's much easier to be able to show that that is part of your pathway to do the course or, or by the textbook that you are applying for. Most vocational pathways require some points on your CV, some courses that you've done, and they usually require some knowledge about it. So when I applied for textbooks uh, prior to being on a program, I just argued that in the interview, I'll be asked clinical questions, and if I'm to manage them, I need to read the book. So that seemed to be all it took. So we've talked about kind of a lot of paperwork that you have to send through the DHB, and they can often be quite slow. So I'd really encourage everybody to keep a work diary. So you can do this in any format you like, but really you should be keeping track of any leave you have applied for, the date you actually applied for it, and the date, and then so you can chase that it's actually been processed and acknowledged within the 14-day window that they are required to do that in. Um, you can also keep track of exactly how much leave you've used so that when your next year ticks over or you go to another DHB, you can check that you've received all the leave that you're entitled to, that it's been transferred over. Also, any claims for costs to be reimbursed, you keep a track of when you've submitted those. That's really useful for when a month later they still haven't done it and you've kind of forgotten about it. You can check back and say, I submitted this on this date. 
where's my money? Um, and usually, if you if you can you know if you've got those dates and things like that, then they usually take a bit more notice than if you are a bit more airy fairy about it. It can also help if you've worked an additional duty or a cross cover. You can check when you your pay comes through that you have in fact been paid for those because some payrollers can can sometimes make mistakes and, and forget to pay you when you've worked an additional duty. An additional duty is when you weren't rostered to work, but you um, you've been asked to pick up an extra extra duty and uh, you have agreed and you go and work that, that day or, or night or shift, whatever it is, and you are entitled to payment under um, the additional duties at, at a higher rate of the additional duties rates which are in the contract. So you want to make sure you get payment for those as well. When you're working an additional duty, uh, it's important that you, you are also can't take on a duty that's going to breach the limits on hours. So if, for example, you've worked a weekend and you're asked to work the following weekend, you cannot agree to do that additional duty. You shouldn't be asked in the first place, but if you are, you shouldn't work it. Um, you, you, you have a, a, an obligation to make sure that you are well rested and that you aren't fatigued, um, and so you need to make sure that you're getting the rest that you need. And just talking about sort of documenting things and having things recorded down, it's really important to make sure that you fill out your timesheets accurately. It's a legal requirement, um, those documents are. But yeah, just to make sure um, it's already clear when you've worked, when you finish, it's all up to date. Um, that's really helpful for you to do that. So I've kept a work diary of mine career so far and probably about a third of the claims I've put through I've had to chase up at one stage or the other or another. I've talked to people who have not done this, who they don't check their pay slips, they don't pay attention to this, they just they're forgoing thousands of dollars throughout their careers and it's a nightmare to try to go back through emails. So I really recommend get into the practice of keeping this diary um, from the start. Our next topic to talk about uh, is rosters. Uh, <laughs> who would like to okay. um, give the basics? When, before you start the year at changeover in December, you should receive your festival, your, your allocated runs uh, for the following year, particularly if you're a house officer. Uh, you need to be told which of the four runs you're going to be working on for the next year. Once you have that information, you then should receive your roster uh, for that first run 28 days prior to the run starting. Uh, and that roster should include three months worth of duties. Um, unless you're a reliever, which is a separate matter, which we'll get to. But if you're not a reliever, you get your roster 28 days beforehand, and it can't be changed once it's been published unless you agree to a change. So you've, you check then that, you, that the roster is compliant with the limits on hours, and then you start working. Yeah, so yeah, at least 28 days, um, the roster needs to be released and if they were to make a change to the roster you can refuse that's uh, your right um, you can accept and if you do and it's a change at short notice obviously then you get additional duties so your roster tells you when your long days are when your weekends are when your nights are it usually does not include your leave so it will be printed on there as if you're working but you've got your letter approving your leave uh, some DHBs operate a leave management system that the three Auckland DHBs do, Waikato, Christchurch and uh, Dunedin, operate what's called the leave management system. I'm not sure if Wellington do. I think they, they started not formally. Not formally. What, this, what this means is if, you, if they use the leave management system, they have planned leave relievers and short notice leave relievers. Uh, and the rules are different for each of those um, types of relief. If you're not working in one of those DHBs we mentioned before, then all the other rules around roster notice being 28 days, 
they apply to you. Just because you're a reliever in those other DHBs doesn't mean that they can give you your roster with less notice than that. If you are in one of those DHBs, if you're a planned leave reliever, you can be given your roster 14 days prior to starting, prior to the week that you're working. Um, if you're a short notice leave reliever, you don't know where you're going to be working for that week. There's quite a few rules that apply to short notice relievers and I recommend that you uh, look at those in, in the contract or give us a call if you think that they are being complied with. They're quite um, prescriptive and um, they shouldn't be breached. Absolutely. I think you need to reread that clause each mm -hmm. time you're rostered to short notice relief. Also, just to mention that there's a bit of a myth around the fact that you, um, if you're a reliever and you're paid a, you know, two categories above, that's you're not paid that, that higher category because of lack of notice. That's, there are other reasons as to why that's the case. So don't sort of get you know, fooled that you're getting paid a lot and then they can just switch you sort of the day, the, the day before because that's, yeah. yeah. All the rules of the MECA still apply. So speaking of categories, um, along with your roster, you should be provided with a copy of a run description, which is the same sort of thing as a job description. If you aren't given a copy, you may be directed to a website where there is a link to your run description. Um, if if then neither, you should ask for them because it's laying out what's going to be expected of you on that run. They should include information such as the team structure that you're going to be working in, when you're going to receive your protected training time, what the job is going to entail, what your responsibilities are going to be, the hours you're going to work, and finally, most importantly, what you're going to be paid. Each run description should identify what the run category is for that run that you're going to be working on, and it will be A, B, C, D, or E, or F. Each one of those is um, determined by the average number of hours that you're going to be required to work on this run, and if you check in the MECA, you will, it will tell you what you're going to be paid for each of those categories. If you start on a run and, you were, and you've been told it's going to be a category C, which means the average hours is between 55 to 59.9 or 60, um, and you think that you're working more hours than that on average, you can initiate a run review. If you're going to do this, the first thing I, I, we recommend you do is have a conversation with the other people on the run to make sure that they're also working those sorts of hours and if they're not then perhaps you need to look at workload distribution but if you're all working on average more hours than the category is paying you for and you, you decide you're going to initiate a run review you can go online there are run re review initiation forms there it may pay to contact us we can just do a quick check of your roster and tell you whether we believe that you would go up you can have your run category can go down so it is important to do a bit of checking before you start this process and it's also common that when you first start work everybody's stuck at work a bit later you will speed up so usually within about, after about two weeks you've probably got a good idea of how long you're actually at work so don't get too scared if on that first week you're, you're there a bit late. And all that happens is you basically you'll keep timesheets um, identifying all the time that you are working and uh, then those timesheets come to us here at the RDA office and they go to the DHB and we basically just add up all the hours and calculate what the average hours are that are being worked on that run. They are automatically triggered in certain situations if your roster numbers change, those sorts of things. And I think the run description, it can be a bit dry to read, but I do recommend everybody does it. You'll tend to learn on the job and just be told by other people what you're supposed to do and what you're not. You'll often find there's a whole bunch of things that you need to do that aren't in the run description, but it's probably more important to be aware of specific expectations, things like are you expected to chase results, are you expected to do um, old discharge summaries, do this and that. 
um, just because that is the document that if there were any disciplinary hearings, you know, that's what they'll be looking at and saying, these are the expectations. They're written in black and white. It's pretty hard to argue if you've never looked at them. All right, on the topic of insurance, uh, insurance, thankfully, very few doctors in New Zealand get sued, but it's, it's a reasonable expectation that at some stage in your career, somebody will lodge a complaint or there'll be something that goes wrong where you might need some legal advice. So it's very important that everybody is insured and it's a requirement of your contract that you have insurance. Thankfully, you don't have to pay for it yourself. The DHBs are obligated to pay for that for you. Uh, you've got a few options when, you, uh, when you're working, which I think you tick a box when you sign your employment contract, but you can also change it any time. The main options are NZMPI, uh, which is a New Zealand-based medical insurance company. Uh, NZRDA is a shareholder of that company, uh, and they are a proper insurance company that is governed by insurance law. So they potentially, when compared with other providers, might have a bit more difficulty wiggling out of providing you cover. Another your major provider is MPS. You'll know MPS from med school. Uh, they sponsor a whole bunch of events. Now, they uh, provide discretionary cover, which in actual fact means that they do provide insurance cover most of the time, but they are not governed by insurance law. And some examples where they could potentially maybe decline to cover you would be for a criminal defense, you know, very costly defenses. And so that's just where you're one potential disadvantages that's not governed as an insurance company. They're also a UK company, so the profits go overseas. Uh, and Medicus uh, is another uh, insurance company that nobody really knows too much about, but you should be aware that that's another potential option. So if you um, think that you're going to need to lodge a claim with your indemnity provider, if you, if you receive a, a complaint or you're contacted by your employer around a complaint or you... Um, believe that you've made an error or similar, the first golden rule is, is don't panic. Those indemnity providers are, are you know, very experienced and capable of handling these sorts of, that's what they're there for. Um, contact them um, as soon as you're uh, able. Um, mostly, I think NZMPI has a, has a 24-hour 0800 number that you can call. The other thing is to, if you're able, to take a copy of the patient notes. Um, it's very important uh, to get those as soon as possible um, so that you know that you've got those and that they're not going to be changed as, as can happen. Um, and yeah, contact your indemnity provider and they will take you through the steps that you have to, have to follow. Yeah, don't discuss it with other people, I think is the other thing to keep in mind. And yeah, don't panic. I think the same advice goes for any kind of, whether it's a medical legal thing or a patient complaint or even a professional issue at work, get independent help early. Even if it's, you think it's just something you can manage by yourself, get some advice at the start. Uh, it's usually things can be sorted out, but it's the problems happen when people ask for help too late. If an SMO comes to you and says, oh, we, uh, you know, I just need you to just give us you know, your version of events or something like that, contact your indemnity provider first. Um, they can just give you excellent advice on, on what to say and what not to say or how to word things. Uh, superannuation. Uh, under the um, NZRDA MECA, first of all, we encourage you to get superannuation, to start on a superannuation scheme, be it KiwiSaver or, or a private provider. The employer will match a contribution up to a maximum of 6% um, for contributions you're making to a superannuation scheme. KiwiSaver is technically not considered a superannuation scheme, so if you were contributing 
to KiwiSaver, the most an employer will match is usually up to 3%. So you can do that and then put the remaining 3% with a private provider, or you can opt out of KiwiSaver and choose to go completely with a, with a private provider and the, the full 6% from the employer goes to that private provider. It's a really good idea to get these underway as soon as you start working. We're all going to need it eventually, and um, the earlier you start, the, the more money you will have in the long run. I meet RMOs all the time who have still not signed up for the superannuation scheme, and it's really at a at $100,000 salary, that's $6,000 a year, you're just saving the DHB. So it's a nice charitable donation to public health, but you are entitled to that, so get signed up early. You should contact a financial advisor when you're actually selecting these, and they usually give free advice if you contact each scheme. For information on the NZRDA scheme, you can visit the NZRDA website. Just to reiterate on where to get help, um, if you are an RDA member, get in touch with your local delegate. You can email ask at nzrda.org.nz or phone the number on the website uh, or visit the NZRDA website where you can see the MECA, which is your employment contract. You can see the FAQ on the MECA, which kind of turns a lot of these common issues into plain language uh, and also covers some other important things to know as an RMO. If you're a small DHB, you'll probably know who your local delegate is. They usually introduce themselves when you start or they may have um, met with you when you were a TI or spoken orientation. At the bigger DHBs, um, the Auckland area ones in particular, you may need to go to the website to find out who the names of your of your local delegates are. The first place to go often is to just to meet with them and speak with them, um, that they know the hospital that you're working in, the situation you're working in, can give you really helpful advice. And I think get friendly with your local delegate. As a first-year house officer, you'll often talk to other first-year house officers, and that's where the incorrect rumours uh, keep circulating and they often come from somebody has asked the RMO unit for some leave or they try to use their sat day and the RMO unit has said no you can't use it and then that RMO tells the others oh the RMO unit told me I can't use it and then everybody says oh you can't use it. It's just simple stuff like that they will take advantage of that so get the facts uh, from somebody who just has a little bit more knowledge um, so your local delegate or the officers. Now, if you're listening to this and you're not a member of the RDA, it's time to join. <laughs> if you're a TI, you can join for free. Uh, if you're working as a house officer, it's $40 a month or $480 a year. So that works out the same. Uh, you can join online. You can pay by credit card or you can pay by monthly direct debit. So why would you join the RDA? I think that everybody should be a member. Uh, about 90% of RMOs around the country are members. RDA is the only organisation that represents RMOs. We don't re represent SMOs, we don't represent GPs, don't represent management or anybody else. So everything the RDA does will be in the interest of RMOs. It's not trying to cover everybody. And I think that's a really important point of distinction compared with some other professional organisations. You might think you've never run into any problems uh, so far in your life and you're a good person and you probably won't run into uh, any problems. Unfortunately, uh, you know, even the best clinicians have had problems in the past. They usually come from patients who you wouldn't have even expected to have been a problem or another colleague who just doesn't see eye to eye with you. If you run into any trouble, the RDA is the place to go to. Uh, if you're not a member, then it's hard to say who you should talk to um, and you're really out on your own. You, know, you may be a good doctor, but that doesn't mean you're good at dealing with professional issues, complaints, and medical legal issues. And we liken it to union membership, um, you know, similar to employment insurance. So 
it's it's like if you have you're involved in a car accident and you're not insured at the time, unfortunately you won't be able to get assistance at that time. So we do recommend being a member. Um, so when you do end up running into trouble, we'll be able to help you out. And to be clear, um, we do uh, have members who are GPs in training, uh, GP registrars, not only those in their first year um, who are employed by the College of GPs, but also second year and third year GPs who are, are still going through that, that training programme. Um, so just because you aren't necessarily employed by DHB, you can still be a member and we still provide services to those members. It's the high membership that makes the union strong. Um, and the work, the great working conditions that we actually have are because of previous RDA members before you who have fought really, really hard for them. So they've gone on strike in the past. Uh, they've done all sorts of things to, you know, to make the working conditions better and also maintain the good things. In places where union membership has eroded, the working conditions just get worse. Uh, so pay goes down, job satisfaction goes down, things like your expenses don't get reimbursed. And, and residents are forced to work unsafely. So we're very, we have some of the best working conditions in the world, and the way we keep that is by maintaining a strong membership of the RDA. Also, as a member of the RDA, you have a say on all issues that the RDA is involved with, um, and that especially means that when it comes time to renegotiating the MECA, uh, you can have a say on what should change. Yeah, so it's a democratic process when you, know, you vote on agreeing to um, certain things, you get to, yeah, as Sam said, have your say, and it's, um, it's about strength and numbers and being a collective. I think also as a member of the RDA, you'll get regular communications uh, that will give you tips on things that are changing, uh, remind you of certain entitlements uh, you have. Yeah, and it's bigger than just uh, your employment contract too. We do lobbying. Um, we speak on a number of groups, um, medical council forums, um, pipeline forums, which is talking about progression through to SMO hood. It's where RMOs can have their say in, in these massive kind of governmental type groups and that's really important to future-proof what's happening for you and what's going to happen for your colleagues coming through medical school. We're the one constant group that is going to have a voice on those meetings. If you do find yourself getting into trouble or if you've got a question or an issue that you need some clarification around or some advice on, as Sam mentioned, you might be the best clinician out there, but it happens to everyone, no one's exempt, then we suggest get in touch with us sooner rather than later. Too often we have RMOs who are sort of already halfway down the track, and if they had got in touch with us as soon as the issue arose, well, then they would probably be in a, in a better situation, and we can help them nonetheless. Get in touch with us as soon as possible, and that's what we're here for. Those problems include things like if you just feel like you're not coping, then that's probably a first sign that you know, trouble might be coming. I'd say it's better off to get in touch with the RDA and just say, I'm having some trouble with this. Is this something you can help with? Rather than assuming that it's not. Definitely. And, and they are, you know, they are calls that we get. We get phone calls and emails from RMOs, whether you're a first year or, you know, f further down the track in your career. Um, if it's, you know, you're stressed at work or you've got some um, concerns related to those. So there's nothing that we haven't, you know, chatted to members about so don't feel sort of embarrassed or worried about any of that we we take those types of calls um not too uncommonly and sometimes um you might find yourself in a situation where a supervisor or, a, or an SMO says that they'd like to just have a chat with you regarding some issue that they may have um, noticed in your in your performance. Um, we strongly recommend that you not go and have those chats until you've spoken to the RDA first. 
Um, often you'll think, if I just go and have a chat, it will all go away. Or you receive an invitation to have a meeting with HR and that kind of thing, and you think, I'll just go along. I'm sure if I can explain things, it will all just disappear. It's best to talk to the RDA, um, and they can instruct you on how those sorts of meetings or conversations should go, and they would and strongly suggest that you take an advocate or a delegate with you to those sorts of meetings. Um, they can escalate. And as Tara said, if we can get in there and, and, and advise you from the get-go, it's going to be much better for you in the long run before things turn, take a turn for the worse, which they can do in those sorts of situations, especially around performance management and that kind of thing. And from time to time, the first time somebody gets in touch with the RDA is when they've been they've received their notice saying that they're being fired. Yes. Um, and usually before that, there's been six to nine months of meetings Definitely. and things that have gone on beforehand. And so in retrospect, they should have gotten in touch at the start. Really important to remember as well that when you do get in touch with us um, via email or phone call or whatever it may be, that it's all confidential. Um, so we don't sort of just go off guns blazing to the DHB without having talked to you. You know, we talk to you about the process, what your options are. Yeah, so it is, it is confidential. Uh, so the last point I've got down here is wellness. Uh, wellness is something that's, I think, highlighted in med school a whole bunch, and it kind of disappears a bit once you actually get to work, um, but that's when it's probably most important to maintain. So important to maintain a healthy work-life balance. It's easier said than done, but the basics of that are certainly taking your leave entitlement. And taking I your meal too. I yep. mean, that, that meal that you provided with is, was fought for very hard by your, your colleagues that came before you. So use it. Go down and, um, and take a break. and, and Definitely have something to eat. Keep your keep your health as best as it can be. And look out for your colleagues. Don't be afraid to, you know, make some suggestions to them. And I think the first year as a house officer is probably the riskiest time for you know, having a major problem. Um, it's a big adjustment, and it doesn't mean that you're going to be a bad doctor just because you um, struggle when you first start. It's much better to get the help that you need. But some of the kind of basic preventative stuff you can do is do your mindfulness, do your gratitude diary, um, and right now, uh, if you sign up for Headspace and complete the first 10 sessions of that, which is a kind of a mindfulness app on your phone. Then the NZRDA um, is paying for year-long subscriptions to continue that if you find it useful. If under the ACE scheme you've been allocated to a hospital, that means that you've had to move, you are eligible for reimbursement of transfer expenses. So Melissa, can you tell us a bit more about that? You and your family are entitled to uh, help half service fares which is a very archaic term which basically means if you are driving or, or taking the train similar to that type of thing you get half the costs of the fare paid for some DHBs will dig their toes in and say that that doesn't apply to airfares I think in those situations contact us because I think the intent is that um, any of your travel fares half of the cost should be should be paid for by the DHB you're entitled to um, expenses to cover meals and accommodation when you, um, while you're travelling, uh, especially if you're travelling a long distance, that might become applicable. And you're entitled to half the cost of getting your furniture and effects transferred to your new employer. Um, there are also transfer expenses when you are, um, if you're transferring as the requirements of a training programme, which will come up when you're a registrar. Um, so, yeah, check the maker for those sorts of things. But uh, Basically, if you're having to move it, and not because of something that you're wanting to do, but rather something required of you, then you should get those costs reimbursed. Well, thank you very much for your time uh, and wisdom on all these issues. So remember to join the RDA if you're not already a member and get in touch if you have any questions at all as you're starting out. Cool. Thanks, Sam. Thanks.
We'd love your feedback, questions, and suggestions of what you'd like discussed on the show. You can email feedback at wardcalls.com or find at wardcalls on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Please leave us a review on iTunes to help others find the show. Thanks to the NZRDA Education Trust for financial support towards recording equipment and hosting of the podcast. The NZRDA Education Trust provides financial support for the education and training of RMOs in all aspects of medical practice in New Zealand. For further information on how you can apply for a grant, Google NZRDA Education Trust.